All right. So I remember a Scott Blankenship who would turn down a lot of the interview requests, a lot of the the panels and and that sort of thing. But you're this evening. You told me that you're going to be participating in one. You're throwing your hat into the in, into the ring of of speaking in front of the people. Tell us more. <laughs> What's happening? Uh, the Public Radio Program Directors Conference, PRPD, is uh, an annual gathering of folks who work in public radio. And uh, this year it's going to be in New Orleans. And I will be on a panel along with Megan Oglesby, Lara Downs, Dr. Louise Toppin, and Tamberly Ferguson mm-hmm. talking about steps that radio is taking to diversify our playlists and include more composers and musicians of color so give us uh, a, a a little sample what are you going to bring them are you going to are you going to get all these program directors together <laughs> um i'm, I'm probably going to have like three minutes to talk um, <laughs> but i don't know i don't know um, i i really don't know how it's going to go down like i said we've it's a 45 minute session and we've got six people on so that's going to be tight time wise we haven't even met to cover our presentation but but this this seems like the moment where you are in the room with the people in your field Mm -hmm. who many of them are uh, in positions of power your opportunity to really say something to you know to to inspire something i mean i I hope that you're at least thinking about (laughs) that that if you only have that one moment those two minutes you know Mm -hmm. what can you say other than shout out to garrett mcqueen after you say that, what are you going to give them? You know, <laughs> um, good question. So I'm cooking that up. I know that I'm going to uh, build on a quote from Judd Greenstein that he made on uh, Twitter. He said that, in his opinion, the most radical way to upend the system is by commissioning new works from living composers. Mm. So that's going to be the vault point for me. Well, we definitely need much more of that. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Opus 158 of the Triloquy podcast. Um, I want to get started today uh, by revisiting a bit of my Sunday morning uh, in the second movement today. I'm bringing in some Tower of Power, uh, but I got on to thinking about Tower of Power this week because Dell and I were being lazy on a Sunday morning and on the YouTube just recommending things and letting it play. It got to the best of Soul Train. Mm. And uh of course, we can talk about all of the legendary bands and the Soul Train line and all, you know, all of that brilliant choreography. Something I had never really thought about, I guess, or never actively uh, thought about was the theme music for Soul Train. Do you know anything about this track here? The Sound of Philadelphia, huh? I was there. Yeah, the sound of Philadelphia, uh, late 1960s, 1970s group of 30-some-odd studio musicians. I continue to enjoy all of the Soul Train content that YouTube was giving me on Sunday morning, 
But I definitely return to that track over and over again. When I think about, you, you just said, a, a collection of 30-some-odd musicians. Mm-hmm. So we have an orchestra here. Sure. Maybe not a, a Western European definition of an orchestra. We definitely have some of that American classical aesthetic. The I don't even know what genre words to put on that funk. Should I say funk? That's a good one. And, uh, you know, with the, with the organ and all the different instruments anyway. There were so, strings and horns. Yeah. It got me to thinking, you know, maybe the fifth or sixth time I repeated it in my earbuds, okay, we have this codified American sound of classical music, of American classical music. Where are the infrastructures, the education uh, initiatives? Who is making sure that the next generation is, to some degree, familiar with this sound? Well, as you have it. As the internet likes to listen, and we don't like to admit that it's listening, but mm-hmm. it listens. And not too, you know, not too long after exploring that in my mind, I happened upon this track. Maybe I have been sleeping under a rock when it comes to the children's uh, <laughs> I didn't know that one. Content. This comes from a show called Yo Gabba Gabba. And you have Bootsy Collins here. You got Erica Badu. You know this guy better than I do. Yeah, from Devo. Yeah, I mean, and it goes and it moves. It's not exactly the same as the uh, sound of Philadelphia as far as, you know, general aesthetic, but I think it's I think it's there. There's some royalty. Oh, that's it. Questlove playing drums. There's some yeah. royalty on the stage here. Um, Bootsy Collins, the, the tree trunk of funk. He goes back <laughs> to Parliament Funkadelic and James Brown. So when I think about all of these things, these sounds of funk, this orchestral music that we don't always call orchestral, I'm so glad that there is someone out there thinking about the next generation and making sure that this is being taught and they understood. I know that we kind of were going going there a couple of weeks ago when you were uh, talking about the electric company. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the more that I think about this concept of American classical music and really reframing the way we think about that phrase, the more real it is and the more ways that I can figure out how to connect it to the real world. I don't think Yo Gabba Gabba is still on, um, but... I hope that I stumble upon more stuff like this, mm. more content specifically for kids. I don't think a lot about the education factor, um, but if we're going to you know, codify this idea of a renewed classical music, here we are. We, we have the content and we have the people who are willing to put on funny costumes and have fun for the kids. And I see it as a, as a great tool to our benefit, making sure that that sound of that funky uh, bass and mm-hmm. and all those things are, are sounds that people are are familiar with. And this is ha- this has to go back a ways because Bootsy died in 06. Mm-hmm. So it's happened for a while. And I was thinking about this earlier today. Where where do you think uh it for most people that something like this gets disqualified as a classical music? Hmm. Well, help me. So Sorry. what I'm trying to get at is as I was thinking about this on the front porch today, I think it. I think it's the drum kit mm. that kills it for people or for 
a music director or a program director or something like that. There is a way forward, and there are people, there are institutions, there are children's shows that are challenging the idea of what is a nursery rhyme, you know, what is foundational to their musical experience as they're taking in all these, you know, different sort of educational programs and X, Y, and Z. That is there. There are people on that end of the spectrum doing what they can to make sure that the kids will be all right. We have to continue to lay that road out. We have to recontextualize our use of that phrase classical music until all over the whole ecosystem, the sound of Philadelphia is something that people are familiar with and not just this um, thing you had to have been there for. That's a part of our music history training. That's a part of our Mm. uh, music theory training. That's a part of what classical music is. And that's what we're trying to normalize here on Triloquy. Let's start. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 158. Thank you for returning to the Triloquy podcast, everyone who's returning. If this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and has conversation and platforms music, celebrates music they may, that may not have always been approximated to that phrase, but things that we believe should be approximated to that phrase classical music in our unique American 21st century context, all the way to decolonizing the phrase and the entire genre. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to check out past opuses, and to donate, please visit Triloquy.org. In addition to your support, Triloquy is made possible in part by the Shuttleworth Foundation here in St. Paul. More on them at the ShuttleworthFoundation.org. A uh, shout out to Springboard for the Arts. Wait, Springboard for the Arts is in St. Paul. The Shuttleworth Foundation <laughs> is in South Africa. <laughs> Thank you to uh, both of those institutions and to each and every one of you for supporting the Triloquy podcast. Let's jump into Movement One. Getting all my stuff mixed up, Scott. It's, uh, you know, again, the wor- working man. I was going to say the work day's over. Yeah. Long, long, long days, but, you know, glad to be here as always. All right, we're going to get started with what accidental from you, Scott? This is a sharp for me. Yes, um, I discovered this article uh, through Twitter from the sardonically irreverent account of Arvo Fart. (laughs) Arvo Fert, I guess it is. Uh, It's actually Aidan Claire Ramsey had... um, a really interesting article in van-magazine.com and he sets up the idea of becoming successful in or you know uh, elite in some whatever field you're in but he mm-hmm. focuses in uh in a way uh music and the arts in particular and he sets it up as imagine you could win a prize of enough money to live and and pay your rent for the rest of your life and you can pursue whatever you want. You don't have to worry about money, right? All you have to do is stand mid-court in the basketball court and shoot a basket backwards without looking. Okay. And the good news is you can try as often as you want. The the thing is, though, it costs $1,000 to try. Sure. So here we are in luck, even people who have means. He sets it up as showing even people who 
have means can be luckier in this way mm -hmm. because they have the means to, let's say in the arts world, apply for a grant that might have a fee. Sure. Apply for a competition or a commission or some something that has a fee attached to it. Um, play the the really fancy instruments that are owned by somebody else. You know, they fly to all of the auditions, stay in the hotel rooms, there. rent the cars. Yes. Yeah. Have the time off and all that. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was really interesting the way that he made this business, even you know, the arts overall, made it real. You know, and I, I felt a lot of what he was saying, but in particular, this is the point that I want to get to because I think this is the dangerous spot. Uh, now, down near the bottom, he's after he's talked about all of the stress that people put themselves through trying to get auditions, to, to um, get commissions or win competitions. He says, all these things add up. The relentless work weighs on you. And no matter how great your burning desire to succeed is, you still reach a point where there's no fire left inside you. The once smoldering coals have long since turned to dust and smoke and you're left hollow like a dead tree that's been struck by lightning. Mm. And I felt seen <laughs> for a moment sure. like I hadn't for a long while. Your feedback, your thoughts on the cost of this work. I mean, for me, it's one of the conversations that I suppose a lot of people still don't realize when it comes to orchestral musicians specifically. I was lucky. I won one of the first auditions that I took for a little uh, regional orchestra back when I was uh, 19 years old. And, you know, the first big boy, big boy job I won um, during the middle of my um, uh, fellowship with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, I completely attribute to the free time that I was able to have. I made a decent salary, you know, I wasn't, you know, rolling dough or nothing, but I could right. pay my bills and eat and and play for 20 weeks out of the uh the D I think it was actually 18 weeks out of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra season. So of course I'm putting in a lot of practice and making sure my shit is all the way together, you know, playing mm -hmm. with them. It's not like I was only working for 18 weeks a year. I'm practicing, I'm doing chamber music and X, Y, and Z, but I have the benefit of fixing my schedule to where a month before my audition with the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra, that's all I had to do. I didn't have any services. I didn't uh, schedule any side gigs or anything. I focused all of my time, 12, sometimes 14 hours a day, really pounding out these same excerpts, you know, the the Overture to Marriage of Figaro, the Rite of Spring, the Scheherazade, right. the Don Quixote, all of, all of the, you know, what what we're trying to destroy here or or try to decenter you know all of that and i pulled through and if i didn't have all of that time to to dedicate to that practice especially right there at the end that last month mm -hmm. i don't know if i would have been able to do it. and then of course who knows what the rest of my career would have looked like um yeah i mean i'm i i appreciate this article because it really shines a light on something that a lot of people don't think about. The 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 place where I want us to go though in this conversation of uh the the price of luck and how at the end of the day it really isn't about hard work. I mean everybody works hard. Everybody is practicing all day, every right, day, right. but is only one person who who makes it through. I want us to begin to explore what inspires uh that aspiration. Why 
do we look for as musicians the affirmation of having won one of these auditions or you know just uh, uh, an opportunity for us to say that we were the best in a room. Maybe it could even transfer into uh, radio. I'm sure when you moved from local to national, there was some sort of uh, aspiration behind that or or desire, some affirmation mm-hmm. of, of getting to have that platform. Not to say that it's bad to, to have goals, but I think we just need to do a, a better job of thinking about why we want those things considering that at the end of the day, it's a a roll of the dice more times than not. At the end of the paragraph, he asks, what was the fucking point? Mm -hmm. Okay. So we know that there are musicians on stage right now that are loving, you know, all the popular hits, the the hot 100 that they're playing. But I watch, I watch social media and I see musicians who are just dragging the pieces that they have to play in subscription concerts Mm -hmm. and nothing but excitement about the new piece that they get to fly over here to, you know, Cincinnati and play with Awadaj and Pratt or Connor Chi down in Arizona or something like that. You know, um, I, I think that the, I think that more people need to realize that musicians are having these thoughts and conversations as they sit up on stage and play the hot 100. And sometimes I, I want to back up and consider the fact that there are many fields where it's difficult to get a job. A, a lot of different non-musical fields, I suppose, where you're flying across the country and taking this interview and seeing if they'll take you here. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about academia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, I don't know. Do, do you have any uh, uh, perspective on what that might look like? Do you Do you know folks or can you think of any other industries that are as cutthroat in this way, 200 people show up for this very specialized thing and one person gets hired and sometimes not even that one person, you know, we talk about all these no hire auditions that we need to get rid of. Right. Is, is there something comparable? Academia gets that close. I've got a buddy, yeah. I got a buddy who's in his early fifties and he taught as an adjunct for close to 20 years mm-hmm. before, before getting something that was a little more stable. But also I know of another guy who's in um, uh, nonprofit fundraising. And he's been sure, driving. Yeah, he's, nonprofit yeah, can be. He's been driving all over the place, and he finally got a gig down in Omaha with Boys Town. Mm. You know, so, but that was after I don't know how many, you know, eighteen months of searching yeah. and doing whatever else in the meantime. Yeah, I mean, just, uh, I mentioned that just for context. Sure, it's, it's easy for musicians to act like we're the center of the universe sometimes. But <laughs> the the other thing that this makes me think about is engaging this conversation with the emerging with the kids, with the up and coming. I remember some conversations, especially in undergrad, about how difficult it is to uh, get a job. You know, something Lacolian would say, um, at least to me in my lessons, was that you have to think about things non-locally. You have to think about things nationally and even mm. globally because he would say there's two full-time bassoon jobs in the city of Memphis with the symphony and with the university, and both of them are taken right now. So what? So what are you trying to do? You right. know, I think, right. and and I think that inspired some of my early decisions to try out music education. But those middle schoolers, I didn't, I didn't have it in me. I did <laughs> that. That that wasn't my gospel. Mm. So that's you know that's what really pushed me into performance. But even so, you know the the story I always say is that I went to USC to get my master's in bassoon with plans to come back to my hometown of Memphis and just 
uh, teach or, or or do something else. I started practicing and things went a different way, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so I was I was very lucky in that regard. Anyway, all all of that to say, uh, what do you think about really honestly having the conversation with folks who do aspire to uh, an orchestral job or or a chamber music job, a soloist job? You have a studio full of cello players. Is it okay to stand up in front and say, by the way? Maybe one of you will end up getting a job. The rest of y'all just gonna I thought they end start, up end, figuring it out. I thought that was the <laughs> opening announcements of the first class. It needs to be, but it's not because how would the conservatories um, pull the students that they need to make the money that they need? Is especially the schools of music that are you know within big state schools and and that sort of thing. You know they they can't just advertise the fact that had most of y'all. It's not even half. Most of y'all will not have the luck to get into the field. Um, otherwise, there wouldn't be any students there, you know, mm-hmm. or people would figure something else out and and treat music as a as a hobby. It, it, the, the phrase <laughs> classical music industrial complex comes into mind. You know, you have all of these people, especially in music, taking out all of these student loans for um, to get the instruments in mm-hmm. many cases, to go study uh, at these... Uh, prestigious schools according to many with these teachers in x y and z you get out of school you got six-figure student loan debt and no guarantee that you'll actually work in that field as a matter of fact it's probable that you won't i don't think that conversation is really happening to the degree that it needs to have because it can't happen to the degree that it needs to have i used to have the conversation with radio students when i taught as an adjunct you, you would tell them most of y'all are not going to get a job. <laughs> I, was, I would say you guys need to be as versatile as you can be. Sure. And you need to start getting familiar with all different kinds of music. And if I were you, I would start a vertical file or something of noteworthy things ah, that happen in music so that you can pull on that mm-hmm. at any point in time. And, you know, it's going to come down to what sets you apart, what you know past what they've asked you to do in front of you. So, you know, what what sets you apart from everybody else the thing is, is the landscape has changed since I was teaching that. You know, we have podcasting now. Yeah, we have other, we have streaming services, and and um, what, what's the what's the satellite one? Uh, Sirius. There, yeah, yeah. So there's so many different ways that your talent, your medium, your media could get put out there. Well, I, I, and, I, and I would never have been able to predict that. Well, I guess the instrumentalists need to take a cue from what you were saying. Most cellists don't get a versatile or dynamic or diverse training right. at music school you know so what if every musician every instrumentalist uh graduating with a bachelor's degree could play the mozart and the brahms but also could improvise and uh could write music you know have that training and could you get know. the feel for gaelic or appalachian right music, exactly sure. different type of classical musics you know i, I think that would that would uh, mm. do a lot, and and that's, that's one of the point. things that uh, creates this system where you have to be so lucky because everybody only knows these few things. A lot of people talk about uh, uh, getting a uh, in martial arts, getting a black belt, and thinking that you've done something and and, and getting your ass kicked the, the first time you're actually in a fight oh, yeah. with that black belt. <laughs> I think a lot of musicians have had that moment in certain situations where you go to the studio gig or you're, you're doing something and the producer is like, okay, just um, fill that in with something. 
That that is the scariest <laughs> thing for a lot of these classical musicians to have to think about improvising something on the spot. Oh. A lot of a lot of folks can not not to say that people can't, but um, most can't. And, and and let's just admit that. So um, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, all of that to just affirm what you were saying that versatility is very important and could benefit mm. folks and uh, and and widen this gap. But again, to my initial point, I think we just need to reframe and recontextualize the reasons for wanting to fit into such a a small peg, you know, just just a, a small sort of specialized thing when there's so much else out there. Um especially the way we're having conversations now about uh content creation and yeah. all of these yeah. folks that have been on this podcast who start their own things and and figure out how to make a living doing it. Yeah. Mm, 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 mm. I'm so, glad I'm out of the out of the out of the audition ring. So thanks for your essay, Aiden Claire Ramsey. And if you're over on Twitter, go and give a follow to Arvo Fart. <laughs> in um in Aiden's Twitter bio, he's described as an award losing composer. <laughs> Listen, Aiden, they haven't given me the Emmy yet either, but it's fine. Um, but I've, I've I've went through and listened to a lot of Aiden's music. He has some of it on uh, SoundCloud. And what I want to share today is an excerpt from a tune of his called Five Dreamscapes for Solo Piano. I, I love the soft, gentle piano, but I love a nice, rough, aggressive piano as well. And this piece ends with a lot of that. So we'll take a listen here to get us to our next accidental. he lost the lullaby award on that one. <laughs> but but I, I love it i mean <laughs> wow in, in, incredible music we need we need more of that you were just saying in the uh introduction that people uh need to commission new music to mm -hmm. to shift the field right oh that was right. that's what uh uh mr greenstein was saying with that comes having a deeper respect for music that doesn't sound like the lullaby that's and that's okay point. You know, yep. not not to not to get you together here, but you know, you're not going to make fun of <laughs> Aiden's beautiful music, incredible music here. That wasn't making fun. <laughs> I'm right. sure that he, I'm sure that he appreciated the and not and and just to make sure we aren't leaving anyone behind. You know, the 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 screen name Arvo Fert, Arvo Fart is <laughs> a play on the composer, the Estonian composer Arvo Pert. Mm -hmm. He was one of the first composers that. Um, Todd Steed, shout out to Todd, my uh, boss at WUOT, one of the first composers that he was getting me on to to think about uh, programming and a focus on new music and some of the aesthetics that have already worked. So if you so if you also don't know the music of Arvo Pert, I would definitely um, uh, suggest uh, going to uh, look that up, P-A-R-T. It looks like part, but mm -hmm. it's pronounced Pert. All right, anyway, um, so uh, the 
Western classical music industry, the American orchestral industry, celebrated some good news last week. The Baltimore Symphony Orchestra became the first American orchestra in the United States to hire a music director of color. I almost wanted to fact check that a couple times, not because I didn't believe it, but it seems like that would have happened by now. You know, we always bring up Titus Underwood talking about I'm tired of the stories about the firsts. Mm -hmm. This is one that surprised me. So all of these people have just been guest conductors. I'm thinking about Thomas Wilkins and um, and uh, Leslie Dunner, all these people. They were just guest conductors at, hmm. at their various places, I suppose. First music in the 106-year history, yeah. Mm. Um, you said that you uh, you had found a recording of him playing, uh, conducting Seattle Symphony. Yeah. And I reached out to my buddy in Seattle, and he hadn't had the opportunity to hear him conduct yet. But uh, the thing that I was seeing online in association with Maestro Haywood was, um, uh, I think it was the New York Times that came out with a headline talking about it was a bold choice. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, there were people that wanted to jump on. Well, why is it bold? Why? Because it's a black man. And I'm tired of the so-called allies who are I, just jumping to act I, like, okay, oh, yeah, okay. you know, like, come on. All right. No, what, what do you think they're talking about, ally? Right. You know? Right. <laughs> oh, where's my butt? You know? And an, another shout out to Judd because he jumped in and said, well, I think it's a pretty bold move to, to hire a 29-year-old man who not many people know his name. Yeah. Let's see what he's got. Well, I for one welcome Maestro Haywood. This this headline from MSN.com is five things to know about Jonathan Hayward, the uh, Baltimore Symphony Orchestra's newly appointed music director. Director, um, I think a lot of the dialogue surrounding this hire is uh, is painting him as the the dark horse. You know, no pun intended, but you know, someone that a lot of people don't know, and oh, this is such a a bold choice and. I have to say, I do not envy him. There are a lot of people, everybody has an opinion, right? There are a lot of people who are counting on um, this first black conductor for the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra to follow the status quo and to please the boards and the funders and all those people. And then you have folks more on my side of the spectrum who is just ready to you know, tear things apart in the in the way that I always am. But at the same time, I'm rooting for this brother. But it's not enough for it just to be a person of color on the podium. That that's not the point. And I hope that that conversation somewhere within the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra is happening. I, I have faith that uh, you know this will this will be something because there's no reason for me not to be positive about it. At the same time. We know what industry this is. Right. So you're hoping that he will use the podium to shape the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra's offerings going forward. Yes, yeah. that's the hope. I hope so. I hope so. And if he comes out with, if the first symphony doesn't have a composer of color on it. The first what? concert. Yeah. It's the first performance. Well, I, I, I mean, well, I'm not going to be surprised. Only because, I, again, I know what industry this is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some hope, but let's go through some of these things so that we can learn a little bit more about this uh, maestro. So, um, number one, uh, he, he trained as a cellist. So, this is someone who is an instrumentalist, someone who you know knows what he's talking about when it comes to bowings and, and all of those things. Don't most conductors have an instrument? 
a lot of conductors are singers, and that's great. You know, that's uh, fine. A lot of conductors are pianists. Think about Leonard Bernstein, but right. as as far as playing one of the orchestral instruments, I think it's a that that proves to be a benefit. That's a that's a positive. Sure. Uh, other points here. It says Marin Alsop is on his side. She was, of course, you know, the uh, previous music director right. of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. But the point that I kind of want to get to here is down here at the bottom. It says he has chameleon qualities. Hayward's father was a chef and his mother was a waitress. He has one younger brother, a member of the armed forces. His new bride is training to be an opera singer. Okay, so he has lots of different experiences and uh, a family with different uh, experiences and backgrounds. Uh, but it goes on here to say, but though he spent most of his life in Charleston, South Carolina, his speech doesn't betray even a hint of a Southern drawl. Instead, he has a decidedly British accent and a posh one at that. All right. This this podcast is called Trailer Queen. Mm -hmm. What am what what am I supposed to say? I am rooting for this brother. And I have to read here that this is someone born in Charleston, South Carolina, of all places down there where Gershwin wasn't and all of them where they would carry it on. Mm -hmm. And we're publishing that he has decidedly taken on a British accent. I guess I'm just making a big deal out of nothing, aren't I? That is completely insignificant to the the idea of a black conductor on a a, a major American orchestral podium. It, it that, that has nothing to do with it. That that we have this nice polished brother, mm. even one with a British accent, huh? Mm. I for one would like to welcome Maestro <laughs> uh, Hayward to the podium in Baltimore. I wish him good luck. My question to you goes up a little bit to Marin Alsa being on his side. She is quoted here with an enthusiastic review. But if you recall, we covered her leaving the yeah. Baltimore Symphony and our conversation surrounded what kind of thing are you leaving behind then for the next person? Mm -hmm. Meaning she said, I'm not getting anything done with, with the orchestra, so I'm out. What's your comment? What do you think about what is being left for him to step into? A lot of expectation, a lot of uh, drama, a lot of stories. Remember, I don't know if we actually talked about it on Triloquy, but it was in the Baltimore Symphony where they fired a flute player for posting anti-vax things. On, the Baltimore on, Sun, was it? Uh, the Baltimore Symphony, the, oh, the oh. flutist from the Baltimore mm. Symphony. Uh, so they, they, there's, they, there's been a lot of shakeups. Remember, they were on, uh, they were on a lockout. I think not too long ago, maybe last mm. season or the season before. It's, it's been a lot mm. going on with the Baltimore Symphony. So I mean, I, I, I think he is being given a chance to, you know, really prove the power of being a new person in the building. You know, he has a lot of things to transform and turn around. I guess that's one positive way that I look at things a lot of times. If you have all of these things that have gone wrong, look at all of these opportunities you have to show everyone how great you are at turning that bus around. Mm. That's great. I can't get over the fact, though, that they are making every effort to show that this Black man, even though y'all might know his name, he's gone to X, Y, and Z school. He's met Yo-Yo Ma, is a trained cellist. Um, he's black, so we are, we're checking our DEI uh, checkbox, and he even has a nice British accent, so he'll be completely unoffensive to even our most conservative hmm. of audience members. I get stuck between this rock and this hard place because I see 
an obvious example of, oh, I hate going here, but I don't feel like anyone else is going to have engaged in this conversation. I see what a lot of people saw with the election of Barack Obama. We have the black person. We have our means and our reason and our fuel when it comes to saying we're doing all of this stuff. We're progressive. But look at the lengths you went to to find someone who so perfectly fits into what people naturally would expect other than his skin tone, mm. other, other than his, his racial background. Even in the MSN article, they go out of their way to make sure people know that he's biracial. This is why I say I don't envy this person because it's not personal. It's, it's not me with a bone to pick with this individual, with, with Maestro Hayward. I'm sure he's going to do a, a great job and I'm rooting for him. I also know that there are black conductors who they would never even consider mm. for other reasons, because their aesthetic isn't quite right or what they would expect. Uh, the programming that they might bring to the podium falls outside of the, the traditions. I'm hopeful, as I began this section by saying, I know what industry we work in. I, for one, welcome. Maestro Hayward to the podium, and good luck to you in Baltimore. All right, you're being, you're being. Pusil- you are not. No, you are not going to get me <laughs> to say anything against this man. <laughs> you're not. All right. If 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 any of y'all want to have the real conversation, reach out. In the meantime, <laughs> we will transition into our second movement with uh, a performance led by Maestro Hayward. You mentioned the Seattle Symphony, so we're going to listen to Jonathan Hayward lead the organization uh, in a rendition of Mars by Gustav Holst. This whole this whole thing is is kind of um warlike. Mm. So this is an, an appropriate pick. A little bit from Mars here by Holst as conducted by Jonathan Hayward with the Seattle Symphony. Of course, I'm going to be accused of trying to quantify or or define or be a, a gatekeeper for blackness. You mm. know that that's that's one of the narratives that will be so easy to be passed around. What do we say on this podcast? We're working to what decolonize classical music. Why am I not allowed to point out the fact that they found the most colonized brother to put on that podium? We're I don't know what you're Never supposed mind. to. I, Never mind. We're what? here in the second movement. What, am, what, what sort of a reaction are you after from me? We're 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 here in the second movement. Tell us about what music you got for us this week. <sighs> <laughs> we, we 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 just go to band and chip. Go ahead. Right, right. Okay. Well, you know, you uh, you sent over the sound of Philadelphia yesterday. There's um, something to sort of prime the pump, and I started listening to all kinds of uh, tracks from that era. To me. That sounded like anthems or theme music as we were walking down the road, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it made and it, it immediately made me think of um, a track called Pick Up the Pieces by Average White Band, which would 
be a strong contender. <laughs> sure. A strong contender for my theme song, uh, right behind Fat Bottom Girls by Queen. But um, anyway, to get to a more current artist, <clears throat> I wanted to bring in one by Josh Dion, who is uh, one half of the duo called Paris Monster. And Paris Monster is a, a, a band I've heard a couple times on a streaming service called um, Radio America. And it's, it's, it, it falls in the funk area. Mm -hmm. You know, you could see him definitely influenced by James Brown and uh, Parliament and that sort of thing. But Josh Dion gave a little headphone concert where in order for you to hear the mix right, in order for you to hear the music right, yep. you have to be there in a, wearing a set of headphones routed through the board. But he's got this really interesting setup for this track called A Vision Complete, where he's drumming with a stick in his left hand, and then he plays a little synthesizer that's set up over here for his right. But he also uses, you know, he also uses that free hand on the on the floor, Tom, every once in a while. To be able to pull together all of these certain elements and different ways of thinking about playing the keyboard versus the percussion, I thought was really interesting. But in an interview that I heard with him, he said, really, he's just plugging into the basics of, of human music, mm. rhythm and voice, that those were the first two. And another thing that I love about A Vision Complete is how the lyrics are a story that only rhyme or near rhyme every once in a while. And I just think he really makes that happen in an interesting way. Spend all this time on something without bringing for lunch. No other reason than a vision drawn up bright. If not perfectly written with care and precision, then it won't take all flight. Oh, a vision complete with nothing in the distance. And my so say more, say more about the general aesthetic you said you you hear funk in here what Maybe else? a little bit what, what other american classical uh things are you hearing here uh probably bill withers um he also referenced ringo Starr as an influence for the drumming because he talks about how you know the real drumming happens when you're not singing so let's see if that happens here just talking about the importance of being versatile and being familiar with as many different things as possible. I think about this when um, I listen to this performance, you know, we, we have him drumming and he's singing and he on the keyboards mm -hmm. and, and maybe there's, you know, something else. You, you mentioned everything he was playing. I think that um, may set him apart, but I don't know if it was just this singer standing in front of a band doing all of that stuff. Do you think the impact would be the that's same a, to man, you that's a good point i don't know um at this point he's how many steps away from the guy that has the kick drum on his back and the cymbal between his knees and a guitar and, i mean and and there are a lot know, of different examples of that shaky um, graves go, going out there especially with the normalization of those loop machines that sure. we keep talking about and um that's a good know. point i don't know either but it's but it's i love it it's, it's really, really great music. Shout out to Josh Dion. We'll, we'll be uh, checking out a little bit more of that. All right, well, for my um, second ending, 
this week for the second movement. Um, again, toward the beginning of uh, at the beginning today, we were talking about how I was, you know, going back through the Soul Train, and you know <laughs> that's what YouTube was feeding me. Yep. So on one of these Best of Soul Train episodes, the musical feature was Tower of Power. Um, I know Classic. Who, I know who they are because of my job with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra once upon a time. But how? what's your familiarity with Tower of Power? Uh, working weekend overnight jazz at KVNO on Saturday and Sunday mornings. Mm. Yeah, Tower of Power was in rotation a lot. Yeah. Love it. Plus, growing up, I think I mentioned to you a couple times, my brother played trumpet. So if there was a, oh, sure. an album out with a horn section on it, he probably had it. Yeah. Well, I played um, with the Detroit Symphony, a Tower of Power Pops what was that like? It was fun. And for me, the most memorable tune that we played on that Pops was one called Some Days Were Meant for Rain. And I remember even among the folks who were familiar with Tower of Power's music, this was one that seemed a little bit more obscure. I'll never be able to find or maybe even hear again the beautiful orchestral arrangement of the tune that uh, we we performed. But even the the version of it that you know most people know the the radio version the way that the guitar is used and mm-hmm. the way that the orchestra is engaged you know you even have your bell tree in there really incredible music and music that i enjoy returning to um as inspired by my watch and soul train i remember it <laughs> about tower of power Makes me feel like one of those uh, late 90s MTV videos is about to start that has a storyline going through it, you know, where a man catches his partner doing him doing him dirty. Mm. Doing him dirty. You see him looking out a window for Lauren. It's just not so often, at least these days. I don't want to say that R&B is dead because it's not. And there's a lot of incredible R&B artists out there. And it seems like you don't really get the opportunity to hear somebody sing to you like that very Mm -hmm. often when you're listening to uh, a lot of music that's out there today. There was something about, again, the arrangement that we performed in Detroit that I wish I had a copy of somehow. Maybe it's archived somewhere. Somebody has it recorded. But even so, even without being able to hear that, the original track itself just touches down in in my spirit and, um, and, and makes me just feel cozy. For me, I think about that rainy Saturday night. Maybe yeah, it's about vibe. you know, maybe it's about forty degrees outside. So it's not just cold, uh-huh. but it's a chilly rainy night. So you want to be indoors. Maybe you're drinking your wine, or I don't know, maybe a nice hop, a cup of hot cocoa. Really beautiful music. And it's a shame that there are so many people who aren't familiar with this oh so important iteration of American classical music, especially it's delivered by Tower of Power. Beautiful stuff here. My love 
said on coming to America. That boy good. <laughs> These folks are singing. They sound incredible. Anyway, if y'all don't know Tower of Power, please go check them out. Really incredible music that I think should be in everyone's lexicon, especially as we continue to have the conversation of codifying American classical music. Well, speaking of uh, American classical music, we have a uh, very special guest it's this huge. week, the American composer. Jennifer Higdon herself. Yeah. It was such an honor to sit down with Jennifer, and she's so laid back. She's so East Tennessee. I could have sat there and and talked to her forever. I think right now she's overseas, I think, uh, traveling and uh, having some music premiered over in Prague. So Mm. I especially um, am appreciative to uh, Jennifer for taking the time to speak with me. Um, I'm just going to let us um, jump into the conversation, but musically we'll get into it. Um, with a recording of a tune by Jennifer Higdon called Dark Wood. A lot of people think about a blue cathedral uh, when they think about Jennifer Higdon. And um, she was very generous in speaking with me about her brother and what he was like and the impact he had on the world and her music. But uh, uh, in addition to to those works, those more reminiscent uh, and introspective works. She has music on that very edge of new music, and uh, this one called Dark Wood features uh, bassoon, and it's one of my faves. So we're going to listen to a little bit of the opening of this uh, to transition into my conversation with the one and only Jennifer Higdon. commission i think it was in 2001 joan tower arranged it for me with the i think it was the what is the saint luke's chamber ensemble mm-hmm. and it was a bunch of chamber pieces that were going to be done on a program all contemporary music and she said they've got a great bassoonist and would you be willing to write something for bassoon and piano trio and i said yeah that sounds like a kind of a cool challenge and having been a woodwind player in a woodwind quintet mm-hmm. i thought you know what that's that sounds like a, a nice challenge. So I actually talked to a bunch of bassoonists and I, I asked them, um, I said, if you guys could have anything in a piece, is there something that you would like? And I was surprised how many of them said, well, we have a lot of slow music. Mm-hmm. I want something fast. So and virtuosic. And I thought, you know what? That's what I probably should shoot for. So the idea was to have a true chamber setting where there was real interaction between the bassoonists and the other players each of the members of the piano trio, but to, to have some music in there with some bite to it mm-hmm. so that people could experience a different side of the bassoon than what they're used to experiencing. So, and you know, bassoonists are so good. So of course I had to have fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, as, as thankful as I am to have another bassoon work in the repertoire, you have to always be fielding the question about where's the flute piece? Where's the flute sonata? Are you intentionally sticking away from the flute? <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm about to have a little mini concerto premiered at the National Flute Convention in Chicago oh, wow. in August. Yeah, it's I have I have actually kind of shied away from the flute. I think I know too much of the repertoire. I have chamber works, but I, I've been asked repeatedly about writing a concerto, but it wasn't until the NFA came to me. That's the National Flute Association. It's their 60th anniversary. And 
they said, could you do like a mini concerto? And I thought, you know what? It's probably time. I mean, I've got like 16 other concerti. It took that much time for me to screw up the courage. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that there are a lot of flute players who have been patiently waiting and would be so happy to, <laughs> to hear true. the piece. I hope so. I always hope it works. This is, I always get in these situations. I'm like, this is kind of dangerous. You know, I, I have to tell you, Garrett, this is so funny. I haven't had these dreams in like several decades, but I'm starting to have performance dreams. Like I'm the flute player or a piccolo player. And I'm supposed <laughs> to walk out on a stage and play. And I haven't played in ages, but it's, I, I usually have composer dreams, like getting lost backstage or having the wrong score or not knowing what's going to be rehearsed. But this was like, I'm like, oh boy, I, you can tell I'm in my native land of flute playing because I'm dreaming that I have to play. <laughs> you know, a part of me uh, believes that when it comes to musical aesthetic in general, those of us who came up through band were poised to have an ear for more contemporary music, more so than the, you know, Suzuki string player or the Suzuki piano player. Do you think there's something to that band yeah. being that, that core? Absolutely. I mean, because I started with band and bands are so enthusiastic. The band people are just so enthused about new music and they, they're active about commissioning it. In fact, I think uh, like next week I have a premiere with the president's own Marine band at the WASB conference there in the, uh, let's see, it's in Prague. So I've been kind of, I've veered off from the orchestral world a little bit. I've been doing chamber works and band work. So, mm. but you're right. It's there's, there's a, um, Maybe it's a literature thing and there's not as much history there, but the band people are into it. And, you know, they rehearse the heck out of the music. And they also there's great skill there. But there's also, I think, an enthusiasm where they all talk to each other a lot. They ask each other, hey, what have you seen? Mm -hmm. What have you experienced? And so word tends to spread pretty quickly. It's kind of nice. <laughs> that is nice. You know, when I when I think about band, I, th I think about Tennessee, where I'm from, and where you have many, many connections. A lot of places claim you. I've, I've seen you uh, wrapped into Atlanta composers, New York composers. But I'm sorry, as a Tennessean, I think we get to claim Jennifer Higdon. Do, do you claim Tennessee to the extent we claim you? Yeah, I do. I feel like the, the mountains of East Tennessee kind of permeate a lot of my music. I mean, it's some of my pieces. I'm very intentional with this sort of a more uh, southern bluegrass sort of mm. sound. Um, I wrote a concerto for the time for three guys that is kind of a bluegrass classical hybrid. Um, it had it really has bluegrass elements. And then my opera, Cold Mountain, my first opera, really has a lot of kind of bluegrass elements. And this new recording with uh, really, I think with the Apollo Chamber Players, because I took music from that opera and made it into a string quartet, it has fiddling in it. Mm. So there's definitely the sound of the mountains, the the nature, because I loved hiking in the Smokies, but also I think kind of the Southern inflection because there is fiddling and there's kind of a blues sort of section in there. So it, it, it's a part of you. I think every composer absorbs their world around them, all the places they've lived. I've lived in a lot of places, so I'm, I'm mm -hmm. not surprised different people claim me, but it's, it's every little bit of it kind of feeds into your brain. And then it comes back out when you're putting the notes on the page. So it sounds like you spent a lot of time listening to that blues, Appalachia, all of that sort of music as you were coming up. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that probably was more of a soundtrack for me than classical was in reality. Mm -hmm. Rock and roll and bluegrass, um, some country, but more bluegrass. I love watching them 
play the bluegrass players in general. And, you know, it's also the ones who were not specifically uh, trained in playing like in the Smoky Mountains. They all they always have this old timers day where you get a mm -hmm. bunch of people up there playing something that's been handed down in an oral tradition and they don't even have a normal way of playing. You look at them holding the violin, it's down and yep. to them it's a fiddle. So it's it's a it's a slightly different world, but the spirit of it. You can see my cat Bella has just walked into here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that you know that inflection of the South, it's a it's a real thing. It's I I often wonder how it compares to like Southern novels, like mm. a, a novelist, someone who's grown up in the South, the difference in the way they write. It's kind of an interesting comparison. Or maybe even with Southern food as well. You know, I'm yeah. living in Minnesota here. Shout out to Minnesota and. Food is a little better down south, at least of what I've experienced <laughs> so far. <laughs> so again, I have to ask, where do you, where are you from in Tennessee? Is it in East Tennessee? Memphis. I grew, I grew up in Memphis ah. and then built my uh, much of my career in Knoxville. So I got both sides of it there. Oh, yeah. That really, you know, people don't realize how long a state that is. I, I think if you tip the state up, it goes to Canada something or like something. That. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and my, my partner, my boyfriend's from outside of Johnson City. So, oh, yeah, you know, he, he really Elizabethton, if you know it. Oh, so. yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I, I definitely get a lot of that. You know, when you use that word uh, training or trained, I think it's so easy for musicians to get in our own echo chamber when we start talking about music theory and the way we the way we break down music. We can certainly do that with your works. But I don't particularly care about that aspect of it, much less folks who are, you know, so-called uninitiated. What, what's your relationship with music theory and, and composition? Well, it's, uh, I don't ever really think about the theory. I've had a lot of theory training because when you do degrees in composition, mm -hmm. you have to go through the classes that they require. But when I'm composing, I never think about the theory. I'm sure it's, it's in there. And when people do analysis of pieces of mine, if they're doing some sort of a master's degree or something, they find all kinds of things in there. But I, <laughs> it's never at the front of my head because I think to me, the most important thing is that the music just sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's an applicable phrase for country, rap, rock, bluegrass, classical. So I take it from the approach of is this interesting to listen to? Do I do I have that? Have I got an idea there long enough? And do I need to change the idea? Do I need to move somewhere else? If, whenever I'm writing a piece, I mean, I thought about the bassoon a lot for dark wood. I thought, you know, what are the areas of the bassoon? Where in the range do people maybe don't get to really listen and hear? Mm -hmm. And I thought about kind of the incredible, exquisite growliness of the bassoon when yeah. it's down low, like doing a trill or something. So sometimes when I'm writing a piece, I'll make lists of what I think are cool sounds on that instrument. And I try to find a way to work it in. But that's like following my ear. Yeah. So it's a it's a very different approach. But I have to admit, I don't ever think theoretically. And I, I'm not a big fan. I don't like analyzing anything. And people ask me questions all the time and I can't answer them at all. <laughs> They're like, what key is that in? I'm like, oh, it's in a key, but I don't know. I don't keep that in my head. And let me look at it. Let me see. Oh yeah, that's right. So I mean, it, it reminds me again of that conversation of the food. You know, my parents and grandparents don't have recipes. They just put some milk in there and some cinnamon. I, I don't know how much, but it, it all comes out. <laughs> it's true. There's, I think it's an instinctive sense that you build within yourself. And you know, you can be a composer without knowing the theory because composing is just creating something where you have one sound and you're combining it with another sound. I mean, it's literally something yeah. that simple and you just have to make it interesting, or at least you have to make it interesting if you want other people to listen. 
If you yeah. don't want other people to listen, it can be anything at all. But I don't think you have to have theory. And I think that's often a, a misnomer. People assume that they don't know enough about music. And I'm like, you know what? I think my music should speak to you. And it's my job to make it do so. If it's your first time into the concert hall and the first classical concert you've ever heard, I think the music should speak to you. So it's my job to make that work. And I don't think you need to come into the concert hall having like this huge base of knowledge or a PhD or anything like that. So Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I can definitely speak to folks finding your music very interesting from the radio perspective and, and especially down in East Tennessee. I never did an event or anything where people didn't bring up your name and how proud they were to know you and know where you're from. But a recurring theme was always you know really interesting me interesting to me people will be like well we we love jennifer's music but surely you don't consider that classical how do you <laughs> describe it so it's like people understand that your music sounds different than mozart's maybe yeah. so different that they don't even think classical is an appropriate word for it that's kind of a compliment actually i think that's i, agree. <laughs> I was kind of amazed when i saw your questions you sent over i'm like someone knew me in east tennessee <laughs> oh plenty of people <laughs> they love you <laughs> it is interesting because to me i don't see also i listen to so much music that i don't see a dividing line between different types of genres which i know there used to be more of a difference like if you were a film composer you didn't mm -hmm. you didn't write straight classical and that just seems like doesn't make any sense to me. And I listen to so much different kinds of music that I guess for me, there's no, there's, there's just no line there and you can cross over and it, it's a, it's a richer toolbox to draw on, but also for listening. And I think, you know, the advantage to music that's being written now is it's more likely to speak to people who listen to rock and roll or rap mm -hmm. or country or something like that. You can kind of get closer to those genres with the language of now and the tempo of now or kind of the energy level of now. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, everyone, you know, that knows your music is familiar with the way that you have immortalized your brother, your late brother through your music. Um, I wonder what he was like. Well, what, what was what was Andrew like as a person? He was uh, he was kind of a very laid back guy. Mm. I'm like, I'm a type A and he was like a type B sort of person, but very artistic, really natural talent for drawing. Mm. Um, he loved rock and roll. He loved playing guitar. He sang terribly, <laughs> really, but you know, the thing that was really striking about him is he made friends with everyone. He was a really good brother. We were really close. So you realize he was just a year and a half younger than me. And you, you start to realize when you lose a sibling like that, that you see the whole world through their eyes, all of your experiences are shared especially with an age that close, you realize that you've learned things together. And when that is taken out of the world, it does feel like this weird hole. Um, but I was very struck in the, I think the last, it was literally seven weeks from his diagnosis of metastatic melanoma to his passing. Mm. And I was amazed how many people came to visit him and, and talked about how much fun they'd had with them and how touched they were. And there was something striking about that, watching someone who's exiting the world saying final goodbyes to people and it was excruciating to go through but i was also just touched by kind of the humanity of various people reaching out and i realized those relationships are they mean everything and when you get down to it this is what music is i mean the marvel of an orchestra or a band playing together that's a whole bunch of people coming together to work in the same direction 
to make something bigger than themselves, but every component is important. And that really, when I was writing Blue Cathedral, I thought about that a lot. I mean, it's why there are a lot of solos in there. Mm-hmm. We all contribute. And, you know, even now when I write a concerto, even if it's like when I wrote a mandolin concerto, I thought about this. I often put a lot of solos in where individual players are interacting with the soloist at the front of the stage because that chamber setting is also important, even if you've got 90 people on a stage. Right. And but it also gives you an incredible color variety. So I think with Andy, when I was writing Blue Cathedral in particular, I was trying to figure out because I started that, I think it was maybe about a year after he passed away. I was still in heavy grieving and trying to figure out is life going to be about living or is it going to be about dying? I mean, mm. this was the first major death that I'd been through really. And it was such a hole in my heart, but you do have to look at it in the context of how are you going to live your life? And that kind of permeated in the music and it was amazing how cathartic it was for me to compose people who hear pieces of mine from that time period often ask me what was going on in your life, which amazes me that they can sense it even without a program note or anything that's related to my brother, it still permeates the music. It's one of the aspects of music that I think is magical. You know what I mean? It's the one thing we can't explain. You can't teach it. And even I having like handled music around major events like that, like that kind of a loss, I'm I'm puzzled by it. It's to me, it's like the magic of what we do. Mm -hmm. Considering how famous that piece is and the subject matter of the piece, is it a work that you return to regularly, one that you don't particularly love listening to? What's your relationship with it now? You know, I feel like that piece belongs to the world, mm. actually. And it, it gets done every almost every weekend somewhere in the world. Yeah. I and mean, I think we've had like seven or 800 performances of the thing. So uh, I don't feel like it belongs to me anymore. And I, I'm always moved. Uh, I used to not be able to get through it without just coming unglued. Now I can get through it without coming unglued. But I'm always moved because I get letters and from people and emails from people who've heard it, who've been touched. But also sometimes people come up to me, if I happen to be in the audience when the piece is being done, people will come up to me and take my hands and they often can't say anything. They're they're so emotional. And to me, I'm like, wow, this is actually what it's all about. It's a a kind of an interesting phenomenon, but it makes you appreciate the the value of music in general and what how it touches people. Yep, and I suppose it's safe to say that the music has already said everything that needs to be said in that interaction. You know, that's why people are speechless, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It is amazing to see the response. I I have to admit, I'm still, I'm still incredulous. <laughs> <laughs> the President's Marine Band did a, a, Ryan Nowlin, one of their arrangers, he's now assistant director, did an arrangement of the piece about right before the pandemic premiered. The band arrangement is amazing. We just recorded it with the President's Marine Band, and I am just floored that he was able to pull off. It's a different piece than the orchestra one, but it it still carries the emotional impact. It's kind of shocking to me. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Clarinets are good at doing that whisper tone that maybe a, a stringed instrument can do, so it translates well that way. Yeah, yeah. He also, you know, he for a lot of that string stuff at the beginning, it's, it's like huge chords, big divisi in the strings. He actually has like trumpets with mutes in them and things. I mean, something really, really unusual so that when the clarinet comes in as a solo, it stands out. It's like brilliant orchestration because I couldn't figure out how to do it. People kept asking me and I'm like, this is the one piece I just can't step back enough to make another arrangement of. So Mm, mm. kind of fascinating. 
Well, with as famous as that piece is, it's not the only work of yours, of course, that's gotten a lot of acclaim. I've talked with both Anthony Davis and uh, Raven Chacon about their Pulitzer Prize winning stories. They both say that they just happened to get a text from someone offering congratulations and, and they didn't know what for. Is, is, is your story similar, learning that you won the Pulitzer? Yep, that's it. And most <laughs> people don't know this, but the Pulitzer people don't call you and let you know you won. You get basically the press descends on you. And it's normally, I remember my phone kind of exploded. There were all these messages spooling up. I'd had my phone off because I was getting like a tetanus shot or something. I was in the doctor's office. They're like, don't have your phone on. I went out of the doctor's office. I turned on the phone and suddenly there were like messages spooling up every 30 seconds. I could see another one coming on and it literally was it was the Associated Press, the New York Times. It was like every wow. major. It's fairly shocking because you're supposed to say something intelligent and you're basically in shock and you're not sure what has happened. But I think Franco Terry from New Music uh, Box is mm -hmm. usually the first person to get to everyone. Somehow he pulls this off to congratulate. And I think I literally said to Frank, what, what are you congratulating me for? What is this? <laughs> but then all the blood leaves your head and you can't think clearly. And it's fairly shocking. You don't get the letter till like a week or two later. Cause you keep thinking, did I dream this? Did I get hit on the head? Am I imagining it? But Has someone gotten this wrong. And you know. <laughs> I know. And they always announce it at like three o'clock and they're trying to make a five o'clock and six o'clock press deadlines. So you're suddenly in a situation where people are asking for quotes and you're just trying to like pull it together. Basically, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's such a big thing. It's so shocking. So, oh, yeah, I know. And it, it kind of can alter your life. I'm. It's amazing. I have to admit, it took me a year or two to adjust to that being attached to my name. I'd go to a mm. concert and someone would say from the stage, well, we've got a Pulitzer winner here. And I turn around and look behind <laughs> me. I'm like, oh, is there someone here? And then I was like, oh. Darn, they meant me. It's, it's 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 pretty incredible. It's miraculous, actually, Garrett. <laughs> I even think about it now. I'm like, how did that happen? So it's a, it's a it's really it's a favorite question of the people are always asking, like, did you know that your violin concerto was worthy of a Pulitzer? I'm like, nobody knows anything. <laughs> you just have no you have no clue. But it's also I I. I look at everyone who wins it every year and I think, oh my gosh, their life is changing because mm -hmm. it does. It alters a lot. It puts like a, a level of legitimacy there on, on what you're doing. And for a lesser known composer, that's even bigger. I mean, I was kind of like coasting along. So people kind of knew who I was because of Blue Cathedral. But yeah, that was wow. <laughs> yeah, and, and I was going to ask a, a similar question. Did you have a unique relationship with the violin concerto before it became a Pulitzer Prize winning piece? No, it was just in a line. It literally, for me, it was in a line of a bunch of pieces. I think I wrote it right before I wrote the Bluegrass Concerto for the Time for Three Guys. I mean, the two pieces were like next to each other. And boy, they're extremely different. Mm -hmm. They're so different. But yeah, I'm still, I still have to admit, I wonder what the heck was that? What happened? So, <laughs> but I'm really happy for my colleagues too, because it also puts a, it makes more people look at their music. I felt like I was in a good position. I was getting music out there. But for some of my colleagues, it's the first time people are like, oh, who is this person? I want to check out what they're doing. And to me, that's a great thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course, you know, when we talk about Pulitzer Prize winning music, for most of us, we aren't talking about, oh, look at how beautiful this score is. We're talking about the recording of the, 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 the piece of music. How has your relationship with performers evolved over the years from the composer point of view? 
Yeah. You know, I think I started out as a flute player. So I think my earliest relationships were literally with flute players. Those are the first things I was writing little flute pieces and they were really small, like six or seven minutes. Um, but I just through the years, what basically has happened is because I self-publish, I've never really advertised my music in any way. In fact, I don't really approach people backstage at concerts mm -hmm. or approach people about playing things, but I just figured, and this is kind of a very naive thing to think that if the music works, the performers will be excited enough to talk to each other about it, which is relying <laughs> on word of mouth, which is kind of a hazardous thing to do. Mm. Now, looking back on it, it was also a very naive way to do it, but it's, I have such respect for performers because having played a lot of new music myself, I know it's frustrating if you practice something a lot, it's still not in your hands and your embouchure. So I really think when I'm writing about everything that a performer, I'm putting a performer through, and even with something like a concerto, even all the inner parts in the orchestra and the people who don't normally get really juicy lines like the tuba or the viola or the bassoon, I'm always interested in writing very interesting lines or solos for them because everybody who comes in to put together a piece, whether it's for a soloist or just two people or an orchestra, you want those parts to be interesting. And I think about notation all the time because you spend a lot of time as a performer practicing, and I try to make sure to give all the information that someone might need. Shaping of things, you know, the phrases and the tempi. I've had so many pieces where composers didn't mark things in the score, and then I got in rehearsal. I was holding something very quietly because they had a pianissimo, and then they come in, they said, oh, I wanted you to crescendo there. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've been practicing this <laughs> little quiet spot, trying to control it. So... I th and basically my commissions, all the concerto I've done, people ask me, why have you done so many concertos? And I'm like, well, those are the people who've been asking for something. So that's kind of the relationship is just out of a mutual respect. I listen to the performers too. Even now when they say, oh, this doesn't work so well on the instrument, I will go back and make adjustments in the music. It's not that unusual for me to do that because I find that like you're a bassoon player, you would know much better than I would what a bassoon how it works optimally. And sure. I feel like it's my job to get that to work for players in general and not be pushing the envelope too much. Sometimes I like to push the envelope a little bit, but I always try to do it with respect. So, yeah. So, so you're not like Beethoven when he said, I don't give a damn about you or your little fiddle when the muse visits me. <laughs> no, I think the muse can visit, but I say, Hey, pay attention. We got to make this work. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way of going about it. So, you know, one of the things that I will always remember um, about you and will always be appreciative for when I was in, in radio down in Knoxville, you know, I wanted to do a, a queer composer special and, you know, you never know who's comfortable being platformed in that way. So I I was, I was just so excited to, to get the affirmative from you to, to be able to include your music and your story in, in that programming. Is that something we should talk about? Is it significant, a, a composer's identity when it, when it comes to things like gender and sexual orientation? That's a really good question. I think if you're the composer, it's hard for you to answer that because it's more visible on the outside because I live, I live in the state of me being me, which is just it's me being me. So right. I don't think of it like how other people see it on the outside. Ironically, I met my wife, Cheryl, in high school in Maryville at Heritage. Wow. We've been together like 41 years. So there's something I think it's important. We both have talked about this to be out and open because it also helps younger people who maybe are in a scarier situation. And I have a lot of students when I travel will come up to me and, and say, yeah, I'm, I'm nervous to talk to my parents about this. So I think for me, it's important to be visible 
and open and really Cheryl and I have not had any problems with anyone, but I also feel like our relationship, we're so close that I feel like I can also be vulnerable in the music. So, but it's hard for me to say how much of that plays into what I do because it feels like everything plays into what I do and I'm just me, (laughs) which is not a really great answer, but it probably looks very different from the outside looking in. But if Cheryl and I've been together since basically, I mean, we were like kids, teenagers. It's like we grew up together. Mm-hmm. So Cheryl knew me as a geeky flute player who was like, I don't know if I can compose. You know, we talk about this every once in a while. It keeps me grounded. Look back at those band days and think about what that was like. And but it's also important, I feel like, to, to be visible for those who don't feel like they can be, who might have anxieties about it. Yeah. And I definitely understand what you say about just being you. People often ask me about my coming out story and that sort of thing. And I don't really have one. I just always, I saw a picture of a boy on TV one day that I loved and that made sense to me. So it's just how I, how I lived my life. And I've, I've, I've explored the same thing, you know, as a media personality, there are a lot of people who would ask me to be more forward about that aspect of my life. And it's nothing I'm ashamed of or anything. Sometimes it's just hard for me to uh, draw the line between affirmation for other people and you know just doing something or saying something for the sake of doing it for the sake of being in the moment you know right exactly it's always a balancing act i guess probably it is it's an interesting but the thing is we deal with it we figure out how to do it and how it will benefit other people but i feel lucky that i can be in a world where i can be this if i were in another country this could be really bad it could be very dangerous so i feel fortunate that i'm in a situation where i can be me and i can be married to cheryl and you know what it's a that's a good thing so i'm very thankful for that does your wife have a relationship with music Do, does she edit things or is it completely separate <laughs> she actually runs my entire publishing and all any oh, wow. like agent booking stuff contract stuff she used to be a meeting planner for conventions but it got to the point where i was getting so many orders for music because we do the publishing that I was spending all my time doing publishing stuff, running back and forth to FedEx. So she runs that full time now. And it is literally a full time job because we probably get maybe a dozen orders a week. It's a lot. So it's it takes a lot to kind of keep all the balls in the air. It's like a a big circus. I never realized how much paperwork goes with being a composer. I'm not sure Beethoven had to go through this this much stuff. But, you know, it's funny. We talk about Beethoven a lot. I think about this because I'm asked about it frequently. People are like, oh, well, Beethoven's famous. I'm like, well, the fact is when Beethoven was alive, he couldn't afford to own a house. And he often would write a piece that might be performed once or twice in his lifetime where I have like over 200 performances a year. I, in fact, have better things are much better for me now than they were for Beethoven or Mozart in their times. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I know composers get really discouraged. They're like, ah. Beethoven and Mozart are taking up all the real estate on a concert. But the fact is, things are better now for composers than they were during the time that those guys were having to work. So they didn't really benefit from what became their fame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and good for you for having the in-house, in-house help. I always say for musicians, <laughs> if you can marry a, an accompanist or a massage therapist <laughs> or, you know, pick pick very carefully. It sounds like you made a great decision there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, looking looking at the relationship between music and the world more broadly, it's becoming uh, very normal to talk about things like race, the patriarchy, um, prison, all, all of those sorts of things through music. Are you 
particularly drawn to any of those conversations? Do you think it's important for a composer to engage those things? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I'm constantly talking to orchestras about this because they're always telling me that they want to be relevant to their communities because if they are relevant, they can basically stay alive. And I'm always pointing out that they represent a very small minority of voices, that it's, it's I mean, half the world are women and, and more than half the world's colored and all the voices are important. And I often feel that voices now can speak more clearly to the people that might go to concerts now. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge topic that has to be addressed. I think for survival, if it's not addressed, it's, I don't think it's going to be good in the end. It has to be relevant. I think in, I think about Beethoven and Mozart, it, they weren't doing a bunch of old music. They weren't doing Renaissance, you know, right. polyphony or anything like that. They weren't really even doing Baroque. They were doing music of that time. And the world is very different, but I personally find it more interesting to listen to all kinds of music from all kinds of voices. It's to me, it's not very interesting if it's just one type of speech. It's just yeah. not. I just am not interested in it. And most of the people I know who either don't go to classical concerts or who used to and don't anymore, it's because they think it's a singular one sort of experience, one type of music. But there's so much richness out there in the world that it's, I feel like it's our responsibility to give opportunity. And boy, I feel like the it's been a very narrow shoot of the people who've had opportunity. It's slowly cracking open, but I think we have to keep pushing. I think mm -hmm. we have to keep pushing. You talk about people who don't go to uh, orchestra concerts or used to and didn't anymore. Do you feel obliged to take on that battle to convince people to go back to the concert hall for any reason? Um, boy, that's a good question because I don't go to concert halls if it's just standard <laughs> repertoire. Right. So I'm probably not a great advocate, but I will, when I have performances, I will try to get people that I know who have either never been to a concert. I always get them tickets. And sometimes I try to get them to sit with me in the box or something, or I try to find people like I have gone out in the audience during the first half and taking people and brought them up to my box. So I try to be, I try to be, proactive but i try to also explain that there's different kinds of music i try to dispel the there are a lot of misconceptions but some of the conceptions are correct i mean it is really really old music a lot of times and it is basically white european males i mean it's, mm -hmm. it's what and it's so that combination doesn't appeal to the majority of the people walking on this planet but sometimes if i see something on a program that i think even if it's not my music if i see something i think might be really fascinating i will often alert people too. I said, you know, I know you don't go to classical concerts, but you should, you should come to this, but I often will get tickets. This is one of the things when I have performances, I'll get tickets for people, wait staff and restaurants and baristas at Starbucks, different people that I know have never even been to a classical concert, or maybe they don't go very often. And I'll try to get them in and figure out a way to talk to them about what's happening. So I feel like I have to be an advocate, but I'm more of an advocate for the more contemporary experience to be quite truthful. Yeah, same. That definitely same. I'm gonna uh, bring us back to Appalachia, East Tennessee, to close out. But uh, but before I do that, how can folks pay attention to what you have coming down the pipeline, to uh, upcoming performances, anything you want to promote? Yeah, let's see. Well, I've got. I'm I'm going through a year of world premieres. They were COVID delay, so I've had eleven in twelve months. I'm about to have premiere number eight. 
but I'm currently working on a piece for Josh Bell that has four mm-hmm. other composers. Jesse Montgomery's writing one of the movements, Jake Heggie, Edgar Meyer, and Kevin Putz were each doing one movement. Uh, that will probably be in the next year or so. I've got a couple of recordings coming out. The Philadelphia Orchestra's recording of Time for Three just came out. That's an amazing recording. And the Apollo Chamber Player recording of my string quartet um, in the shadow of the mountain. So I have an opera coming up in fall of 24. It got moved. It's opera Philadelphia brass quintet with the American brass quintet in October and a big suite for orchestra from my first orchestra. My first opera Cole mountain has 37 orchestras co-commissioning. It is, will be in a lot of different places. Um, it's got a lot of States represented. It starts in Delaware in September. I know the Knoxville symphony is on there in the spring. I told oh, them I'd nice. come in. So but I've, I've always got stuff going on. So my website's just my name. <laughs> so I have to often look on there to see, wait, what is happening? I don't know. People <laughs> ask me. I'm so focused on writing the notes on the page. Basically, yeah. I, a lot of times I don't know what's going on until Cheryl says, time to fly to this. So, And if you're at the flu convention in Chicago in August, pop by. We're going we're gonna to make some music. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, uh, I, I love and I treasure my time in East Tennessee in Knoxville, you know, in, in those mountains and even going to Pigeon Forge and, you know, all, all of those things. As beautiful as that place is physically, many people would say that um, you don't have the same access to teaching or, or live performances as one would living in New York or Los Angeles or, or something like that. I wonder what your words are to folks who are in more rural areas areas who might be interested in music. We have YouTube and everything these days that haven't always been there. But beyond that, how do you think folks can engage the arts in their own unique way if they're living in a place that isn't New York City? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, it's weird. I was born in Brooklyn, but I haven't really, we were only there six months. I was not old enough to do anything. But I often think when I really look around, when I travel around the country, the majority of the art, the performances is happening outside of New York Mm. in reality. So, but because of the web, I think it's possible to constantly look around, find things, look at at podcasts are are amazing to me. I discover so much stuff through podcasts. So the web carries a lot. I think the things are out there. You just kind of have to look around. The trick is there's so much out there now that everyone's looking at tons of stuff. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of music. And I think that could be a good thing. I don't think that's a bad thing because it means basically probably the gatekeepers who were there before who were kind of putting up walls saying you should listen to this, you should listen to that. Now we can kind of step around it and say, hey, what do I want to explore today? And that's an important thing. The tune's called Roaring Smokies. It's a movement from the Concerto 4-3 by Jennifer Higdon, uh, one in many of her uh, more Appalachian-inspired compositions. I just love how she shines a light on, you know, our old Tennessee home. I know they talk about the song Old Kentucky Home, but, Mm -hmm. you know, from, you know, Memphis, where I'm from, where rap and blues and all that black music is king, all the way to the east side of the state where you have more of the uh, folk and Appalachian and bluegrass and those sorts of things. It's a really beautiful place to be from. And I was 
glad to connect with Jennifer on that level, just talking about home in, in Tennessee and, yeah. and, and the way all of that uh, Im- impacts uh, the music. Such, such an honor uh, to have uh, Jennifer Higdon on. All right, well, before we get into the triloquy, Scott, let, let, let me have the opportunity to revisit, to go, to go back to the first movement and my comments on Maestro Jonathan Hayward. I find myself in such complicated and difficult situations because I know and understand the baby steps that need to happen to to transform something like the orchestral field. I also understand the ways in which Black people and people of color are used to platform the perpetuation of the status quo. And I refuse to be gaslit into thinking that that's not the case. So if I can just repeat something here, it's not about me having anything against anyone or trying to poke fun or anything like that, but I can't help seeing the reality that I see, especially considering the extent to which they made sure and by, by they, I mean the writers at MSN, at, at the very least, right. you know, if we're going to look at that article, they made sure that the reader understood that this man of color, this person of color, is able to fit into the structure as it exists. Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. That is definitely what I read in that piece. And it's hard for me to ignore that. Mm. It's It's hard for me to say nothing about it. And I understand the predicament that that puts you in you know not wanting to necessarily comment on it or or anything like that but i don't know i don't know of a lot of other people i don't know of a lot of other platforms that are willing to at least engage that conversation and consider that as one of our realities i do understand the direction that you're coming from yes but i also think about the audience and who that was written for and it lines up it lines up. Well, I wish him the best. I really do. I, know. I promise I do. I promise I, I do. I welcome and Maestro. Hayward. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep 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 fighting. Okay. All right. We're gonna get into this triloquy today. Speaking of Tennessee, I gotta talk about Tennessee. And one of the things that I just happened upon and something that I want folks to think about. But to get us into it, we're gonna listen to. A little blues, since we were talking about our our uh, our new conductor, but he's from Charleston, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and bridge the gap. I'm gonna put a little um, Gershwin on on my on my platform here, as inspired by his time down in Charleston, South Carolina. This is summertime, as brought to y'all today by Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong to get us into our fourth and final movement this week. Summertime. You do have to give it up or admit that Gershwin did set the framework, that did build the frame 
for musicians to really paint this musical picture of humidity mm. and mosquitoes and, <laughs> and weeping yeah. willows. As, as, as much as I am uncomfortable even thinking about George Gershwin sometimes, he gave us a piece of music. Mm. So shout out to Mr. Gershwin from Charleston, wow. South Carolina, who I'm sure, you know, had a, had a nice American accent because this is where he's from. Anyway, we're here in the in the fourth movement. I want to share with y'all just quickly something that I came upon. So I talk a lot about how YouTube will point me to stuff. That's how I start to thinking about different types of music and to tell y'all about it here on Triloquy. Well, they also somehow managed to get me into this rabbit hole of white supremacist content. As nuts as that sounds, it's true. Um, I, I won't go into talking about the way that some of this hate mail has amped itself up. I'll, I'll show you something after we get done recording. But I, I can't help but to think the algorithms are trying to do what they can to scare or or intimidate certain people with some sort of presence online. I'm, I'm not saying that that YouTube is being aggressive to me. I'm saying stuff is getting weird out here. Anyway, one of the videos that popped up on my screen just in my feed came from an organization called American Renaissance. So out of curiosity, I just went on their website. I'll read here just um, a little bit about the organization. Uh, it says here, uh, race is an important aspect of individual and group identity of all the fault lines that divide society, language, religion, class, ideology. It is the most prominent and divisive. Race and racial conflict are at the heart of some of the most serious challenges the Western world faces in the 21st century. All right, so we're <laughs> everything's chill so far, but as you keep reading, it says, the problems of race cannot be solved without adequate understanding. We believe that whites, like all racial groups, have legitimate interests that must be defended. The defense of those interests is white advocacy. We seek to advance only those interests that we recognize and would defend for all other racial groups. I won't spend the time unpacking that <laughs> part. Mm -hmm. What I will spend the time to unpack is that they have an annual conference. So there are people who travel across the country to be a part of dialogue about white racial advocacy, whatever that means to y'all, okay? I know what that means to me, but whatever that means to y'all, that's what they come here to, to discuss. This year, for 2022, it says um, that the conference uh, will be held in the lodge at the beautiful Montgomery Bell State Park. So, they have a link there, so I click on it. Let's learn more about the Montgomery Bell State Park that's uh, aiding and abetting these white supremacists. I go to that website, and I see here at the top, uh, the lodge at Montgomery Bell is a part of the Tennessee State Parks organization, you know, the back system. to Tennessee. Yeah. So I do some reading and research on them and find my way to a tweet from June 19th from the Tennessee State Parks that highlights the first black person to be allowed into the state parks. They were the second state park in the nation to um, uh, to let black folks in. And, you know, they're posting this and, and uh, making everyone aware in honor of Juneteenth. So what's my point here? We have this organization that is doing something that is seen as equitable, as a positive shift, you know, highlighting and honoring the Juneteenth holiday. It's not difficult to connect the dots between that organization, this post that people can see as a good thing, and 
one of the violent, dangerous organizations that they are supporting by having their conference on their state grounds. Mm -hmm. This is important to think about because when we think about our arts institutions, we don't often spend the time to follow the dollars and see who the donors are, to see what the donors support, to see what they want to see codified, what they want to see not change. And they'll mm -hmm. even uh, support and give money and, um, and financially fortify an infrastructure for that reason. I can't help but to allow my mind to go there. How much time have you spent following the money? Have you ever thought about the idea of where the dollars come from and who are the individuals who, A, fortify the classical music structures as we continue to see and that we're trying to shift and what those folks might believe in, what their political leanings might be, mm -hmm. even as something as extreme as this American Renaissance. Not to the length that you have here. Certainly, I've seen certain businesses attached to conventions or events that I don't agree with. And so I go, okay, well, then I won't be giving that particular company or person my business anymore. Um, I really think it's interesting how on the American Renaissance website, they, you know, you read, you read part of the, what we believe section mm -hmm. in the about us. And it sounds very clean and PR, you know, we seek no advantages as whites. We only express the expression of preference for our own people and culture that are taken for granted by people of other races, but denied to us. Um, and then over here, you see what it's really about a blog with the title called the lunch money racket you can imagine what that's about mm. commentary why i'm fleeing south africa videos on black brutality and a podcast with the topic whites can just suck it up so i think you get a real taste of what they're about by their content not by who they say they are i think who they're really saying they are is over here in the content area but i haven't gone this far down uh, the rabbit hole of following the money like you have here. And, but this is the thing. I don't see it as some deep investigative journalist thing I did. But you an did find it by accident. though. A right? And a uh, an internet algorithm felt like that based on my searches or, or whatever they're gathering from my computer, that this might be something I'm interested in seeing. Maybe somebody's being an accomplice because mm. now we're raising awareness. So I, I had this thing in front of my face. I check out their website. I uh, learned from the website that they have a conference. I saw where the conference was. I saw one of the organizations, one of the institutions, the Tennessee State Parks, that supports this, has an arm in this. And oh, that we also we're also equitable. There's all I'm saying is here. There's a lot of play in both sides of the fence going on. There's a lot of incel activity going on. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to continue to push the needle and really challenge the status quo, we need to start looking at some of the money. We need to start looking at what are the infrastructures behind these status quos. Because again, as easy as it is for me to connect a Juneteenth post to white supremacy, I think it might be very interesting for us to learn what connections we can make if we follow the money with our arts institutions. That's what I have for this week. Maybe I'll, I'll, I've inspired one of you to go on and look in some of these public records of these orchestras and make sure that, um, you know, you don't find anything interesting. And mm -hmm. if you do, you know, we're always here to see it. Um, Maestro Jonathan Hayward, love you, brother. We rooting for you. 
See y'all next week.